You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robert Barnes, and I cover the Supreme Court for the Post. We're very fortunate today to have two members of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court joining us, former federal judge Thomas Griffith and Professor Christina Rodriguez, who was co-chair of the commission. Uh, Judge Griffiths, Professor Rodriguez, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. Hi, Christina. Hi, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Old friends getting back together again, I see. Um, Professor Rodriguez, would you start us off, please, and uh, tell us the impetus for this committee and sort of the I guess, unusual uh, mandate that you had, which was not really to make recommendations to the president. The committee was effectively making good on a a campaign promise that uh, then-candidate Joe Biden made during an interview. When asked about the prospects for Supreme Court reform, he said that he would form a committee in order to study those ideas. The committee was set up not to make recommendations, Uh, but to canvas as wide a range of views as possible in order to provide an actual analysis of the proposals that are prominent in the public discussion for the president's benefit to better inform his understanding and the public debate over whether the Supreme Court needed reform in the first place and over which types of reforms are the ones uh, best suited to whatever problems one might identify with the way the court currently operates. Judge Griffith, let's go to one of those right away, which was the idea of adding new members, more members to the Supreme Court. The court's membership has varied over the years, but for more than 100 years, it's been set at nine. Um, Can you tell us about the uh, discussion that the commission had on this issue? Sure, we had uh, we had public hearings, and then we uh, where we invited uh, experts uh, from around the country to to speak to the issue. Then we had public meetings where we discussed it amongst ourselves, uh, the issue amongst ourselves. And as as uh, Christina pointed out, our, our 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 mandate was not to resolve uh, the issue, was was not to come up with a recommendation whether the status quo shall remain or the uh, court should be expanded. Our mandate. Uh, was to describe the nature of the debate so that the president would be better informed uh, uh, about about what was at stake uh, in, in the debate. Uh, and so uh, so our our debates were uh, at least the ones I participated in were were, were not so much as the pros and cons of expansion or uh, keeping the court at the size it's been at for for so long, uh, but whether uh, but rather how we describe that debate. Uh, for the president and for the American uh, for the American public, and, and I, I have to say uh, this. So I'm I'm one of the uh, political conservatives that made this a a, a bipartisan uh, a commission, uh, and and you know the, the the final report isn't exactly how I would have written it. It's not exactly how Professor Rodriguez would have written it. it was the, it was the work of 34 people uh, working together. So there's always compromise uh, involved. Uh, but what I think is the most striking feature of the report, and, and frankly, I don't think it's gotten enough attention, uh, is that in a day uh, of bitter partisan divide, uh, 34 people got together and created a civil 
means of discussing one of the most contentious issues of the day and produced a, a, a report that uh, uh, was supported by every uh, member of the commission. So quite apart from uh, the substance of the report, I think the process of the report uh, is something that should get attention. And for this, I give full credit to the White House who who, who made it clear to us throughout the process that, that they wanted civil discourse, that they wanted all views to be considered. And uh, e even though there, uh, there were only a few of us who would be labeled as political conservatives, our views were fully, uh, uh, were solicited, uh, were, were described accurately, and uh, I, I think for each one of us, I shouldn't speak for the others, but at least for me, and I, but I think the others agree, uh, it was a remarkable process that, uh, um, that I think produced a, a report that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's worth studying. Uh, Professor Rodriguez, could you, uh, I'm gonna let uh, Judge Griffith get to the cons of this, uh, could you give us the pros uh, on this uh, idea of adding more members, whether or not it's something you personally endorse or not? I'm, uh, you're, you're a good reporter. You're able to uh, present objectively the arguments on both sides. Uh, can you give us the pros? As, as a lawyer, too, I, I'm capable of doing that. And I, I should say that this was the issue over which I think there were the deepest disagreements. And the disagreements were such that we couldn't go as far as we might otherwise have liked in analyzing the validity of the arguments in favor or against reform. And instead, our goal was to present the case as advocates in favor of expansion and opponents of expansion would make them. But the core of the argument in favor of expansion is twofold. The first is that the current composition of the court is the product of machinations during the confirmation processes over the last three nominations uh, where Republicans violated norms. Uh, chief among them was their refusal to provide Merrick Garland, President Obama's last nomination, uh, a hearing, uh, much less a vote. And that as a result, there's a skew in the composition of the court. And that's premised on, I think, what is a widespread belief that the decisions of the Supreme Court are highly consequential. And even if justices themselves are not partisan actors, they do have ideological and jurisprudential worldviews that change depending on whether they are those who would be appointed by a Republican or by a Democrat. But the more, the more fundamental argument in favor of reform is that over the last several years, and this dates back before the controversy over Merrick Garland's nomination, the Supreme Court has been making decisions that uh, proponents argue undermine the processes of democratic decision making, chiefly by interpreting the Voting Rights Act uh, in ways uh, that narrow its reach and that declare certain key parts of it unconstitutional, which has allowed states to engage in regulation that restricts the franchise. And the concern that these proponents had, and that's articulated in the report, is that that means that the normal ebb and flow that you would have in the appointments to the court across ideological divisions might be in danger of uh, being stopped altogether and that a single party is seeking to entrench itself and that the decisions of the Supreme Court are, are facilitating that. Now, I should say, and I'm sure uh, Judge Griffith will ably articulate the arguments against it, that where those feelings were deeply held, the feelings that that was a mischaracterization 
of the recent practice of the Supreme Court was also deeply held and that taking that approach to then justify expanding the court to counterpack the court, so to speak, would be significantly damaging to the institution as a whole and would only spawn uh, back and forth that would further politicize a court that, it, that is already uh, regarded as uh, highly political in nature. Yes. Uh, Judge Griffith, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about an op-ed that you wrote afterwards uh, in which you uh, said that you why you thought uh, adding members was a bad idea. You know, part of it is, as you know, um, that all of the conservatives on the Supreme Court now were nominated by Republican presidents. All of the liberals were nominated by Democratic presidents. That probably sounds to most people like it makes sense, but that it wasn't that way for a very long time on uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, so take that into account when you talk about why you think now would be a bad idea to uh, add justices. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, uh, Professor Rajiv did a good job uh, uh, explaining uh, the opposition to it. Let, let me let me go step one, take one step back, and and maybe frame this in a little larger uh, 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 view. Um, and I think there's a there's a, a fundamental disagreement among some of the uh, commissioners about the role of the Supreme Court uh, under under the Constitution. Um, and uh, and those of us who opposed expansion, uh, at least I oppose expansion, uh, start with the idea that the Supreme Court, uh, although certainly not perfect, has 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 done a remarkable job in the history of the Republic. It's the it's the crown jewel of our of our constitutional government. Um, uh, I, I spent a, a number of years uh, deeply involved in rule of law projects in former communist countries, uh, and everywhere I'd go and met, meet with reformers, uh, they looked to the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court uh, as the model of an independent uh, uh, judiciary. Um, I, I thought one of the most moving uh, moments uh, during our, our public proceedings came uh, from an anecdote told by Walter Dellinger. Walter uh, was the acting Solicitor General uh, in the Clinton administration, a professor at law at Duke and a distinguished uh, appellate advocate and public servant. Uh, Walter told the story of how he argued uh, the side for the uh, uh, side of the government in the Clinton v. Jones case, the case about uh, whether Paula Jones would be allowed to proceed with her lawsuit against uh, a sitting president of the United States. Uh, Walter argued for the government's position uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, he lost. Uh, that position was rejected nine to zero. Uh, Walter told the story that he was in Beijing uh, teaching Chinese law students uh, at the time the, the, the decision was handed down. And, and he, he spoke, it was quite moving, I thought, about the astonishment that his law students uh, greeted that opinion, that, that a, a, a low-level state employee uh, could pursue a lawsuit against the President of the United States and that the Supreme Court upheld that ninth thing was just simply astonishing uh, to them. Uh, I tell that story because uh, I'm one who thinks the Supreme Court is playing very well it, it, it's, its part in our constitutional system. And I worry about efforts to change that, uh, the unintended consequences that would come from that. Now, we know that uh, for many of the proponents of expansion, there are intended consequences. Uh, and the intended consequences are to 
uh, affect the decisions of the Supreme, future decisions of the Supreme Court in a, in a way that's more to their liking. Look, I don't agree with all the decisions of the Supreme Court. I, I, I was on the panel that was overturned uh, in Shelby County. I think the Supreme Court got that decision wrong. But I reject the idea uh, that this Supreme Court is some part of a, a plan to uh, restrict the ability of American citizens to vote or that it has a, a, a partisan preference for one party over the other. That, that's just simply uh, not true. Um, and, and, and I worry that uh, people who make those uh, claims, uh, people who make proposals for change based on some idea that the Supreme Court uh, is not uh, legitimate, uh, I, they, they play into uh, something that I think is quite toxic in our culture today, and that's this, this sense of, of distrust or, or, or mistrust. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, said uh, recently, he predicted a, a cataclysmic failure of American democracy because he said, we just don't know what happens when you drain all trust out of a democracy. Um, I, I worry that uh, that the arguments that are made for expansion of the court uh, assume that the, the, the court is filled with political partisan actors uh, and that the uh, that the uh, antidote to that is to fill it with more uh, partisan actors. Well, that's not been that was not my experience in the federal judiciary. It's not filled with partisan actors. It's filled with men and women who are doing their level best uh, to uh, follow their oath to be uh, Im Im impartial. They have different views about how to read the Constitution, how to read a text of, uh, of a statute or, 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 or a regulation, uh, but they're not being driven by by partisan uh, concerns. And, and, and I, I, I worry that too much of the argument in favor of expanding the court uh, buys into that fiction. It leads to distrust. Um, and uh, we need to have, we should have, and we need to have a, a confidence in the Supreme Court, uh, uh, particularly at a time uh, when uh, trust is uh, diminishing for many of our governmental institutions. Well, you know, that, that leads into a question that I would like to read you from Gene uh, in Nebraska. And Professor Rodriguez, I'll ask you to take it on first. Uh, Gene says, how do we get back to trusting that the Supreme Court is apolitical? I think that's a difficult question to answer because I don't think the Supreme Court is apolitical. I agree with Judge Griffith that most judges and justices are doing their best to interpret the law and the Constitution uh, with a view to what those things mean as opposed to what the right outcome is for whatever partisan affiliation they hold. But the Supreme Court's decisions in particular are highly political in that they're often questions of first impression, the ones that generate controversy, that lead to interest group formation, and that uh, raise the interest of the public are ones that represent either undecided questions about constitutional values or that reflect ways in which the country's views about the nature of constitutional values and how far government regulation can go in relation to those values are changing over time. And, and so I think that one way to improve the perception that the court is not engaged in partisan decision making and is not illegitimate in that it's favoring one side over the other is to think about reforms that would 
make the Supreme Court more aligned with Democratic majorities. And there, there are two types of reforms that would, would adhere to that objective that we ex explored in the report. The first is term limits for Supreme Court justices. This is obviously a long-term proposition. Uh, many people, myself included, think that it would require a constitutional amendment to achieve that. So it means that it's a difficult reform to achieve. But if we were to adopt a system of term limits, we would uh, say, for example, if it were an 18-year non-renewable term, each president would have the opportunity to appoint two justices to the court. And the justification that proponents of term limits give that we underscore in the report is that would make the court and its ideological composition broadly responsive to the outcome of democratic elections over time. Not that it would be partisan or responsive to the particular political debates of the moment, but that the composition would more carefully and closely reflect the way the country is evolving. And I think it's both easier to accept losses at the Supreme Court for issues that you care about and to have faith that the court will stay in line with public views about what the Constitution means and what it should protect if we have a system of nomination and confirmation that more closely tracks the ebb and flow of politics. And, and I think that is an example of a kind of big picture, difficult and complex reform to enact that could create a better system overall uh, that might have some uh, something to say and do about the polarized state of our politics that is now infecting the court and people's perception of it. Judge uh, Griffith, when uh, I think about this issue, I think about something Justice Kagan said when she was confirmed by the Senate, the first call she got was from the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts who said congratulations, and he looked forward to uh, working with her for the next 25 years. And she said, only 25? Uh, you know, is there really a reason for us to think that the Constitution intended for people to serve uh, all of their lives on the Supreme Court? And, uh, you know, this is one of those things that I don't think the rest of the world does look uh, to us about uh, where we're the only country that doesn't have either term limits or a specified retirement age. Well, uh, the, uh, the the lifetime appointment is uh, it's it's there in the Constitution, right? I mean, so if, you, if you're going to change that, you're going to change something quite fundamental. So uh, the, the conservative in me says, be careful about that, right? Um, uh, no, in fact, the, the Constitution was created, the court was created with lifetime uh, uh, tenure. Um, uh, and so that's, that's, I think we ought to be very careful about tinkering with that. I, I agree with Professor Rodriguez, the, it, it would require a constitutional amendment to, to, to change that. Uh, and uh, I'm not certain it would be uh, uh, desirable. Uh, some of our greatest uh, justices, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Brennan, Justice Black, uh, served uh, longer than 18 years. Um, uh, so I don't think I don't think I, 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 I actually came into the commission uh, thinking, well, maybe this is a, a good idea. But as I uh, heard the testimony and uh, read the problems uh, with it, uh, I, I was persuaded that. that uh, uh, that's not a good idea. That it, it might have uh, unintended consequences that uh, uh, that would would uh, weaken uh, the, the the strengths that the uh, current Supreme Court uh, 
uh, Supreme Court has. Uh, if I can respond to uh, something uh, Professor Rodriguez said, which I thought she said uh, very, very well, uh, but, but, but I have a fundamentally different view about the role of the court, the role of the judiciary, and, and whether they are supposed to be uh, responding to evolving democratic uh, uh, norms. Uh, uh, it, it, of course, at one level, you want to say they, they are, but at another level, I think it's important to understand that the, perhaps the most fundamental decision that the framers made in creating the Constitution uh, was who decides the law. Um, that seemed to be, in some cases, even more important to them than, than, than what is decided. Who decides the law? We call it the separation of powers. Uh, and, and our constitution is based on a radically different idea uh, than had ever been presented uh, before. And that is that in our, under our system, we the people make the laws through politically accountable representatives, uh, through people they vote for. Uh, the judges aren't voted for by uh, we the people. Judges occupy a very, a tenuous role in a democratic republic. And, and uh, I, I believe the view of the judge is to be the faithful agent of uh, uh, those who make the laws uh, and that the judge is not to be interposing his or her own policy preferences uh, in deciding the outcome of the case, but they're supposed to be looking to what we the people have decided through their elected representatives, uh, through law. Uh, when you have that view, um, uh, you're, the, the, the question isn't whether um, uh, judges and justices are following uh, social trends and changing norms. It's whether they're following the law as enacted by we the people in the Constitution, uh, in the acts of Congress. That's a that's a I think a very different view of the role of a judge than 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 some of the proponents of uh, term limits and expanding the court uh, have. And I, but I think it's a fundamental disagreement. Uh, let me ask you about um, reaction to this and also whether or not uh, you see some action coming uh, on, this, uh, on this report or on these subjects. You know, as you know, the Supreme Court right now is considering whether to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. It's been asked uh, to do that. That was a decision made 50 years ago uh, that uh, said that there was a constitutional right to abortion. If it's overturned, uh, it likely would be along these lines of the uh, Republican nominated justices on one side, the Democratic nominated justices on the other. Uh, if something like that were to happen, would that, do you think, provide uh, a new momentum for either of these proposals? Uh, Professor Rodriguez, would you start with that? I do think that if and when the Supreme Court in June curtails the, the right to terminate a pregnancy, and depending on how it goes about doing that, that it will cause significant political reverberations. I, I do think that will strengthen the vehemence of the calls that some people are making for expanding the court. But the, the bottom line is that the Democrats don't have the power in Congress to do that at the moment. I, I don't think that it's um, a, a realistic reform, especially given the prospects for the next two elections. I do think, however, that the debates that we're having now and the commission report that is advancing those debates 
will shape a longer term debate over the court. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility that sometime in the future, when a political window does open, that there would be structural reforms to the court. And when that happens, it's possible that we will look back to this moment, not just to whatever the court does with respect to Roe versus Wade, but also uh, what the court is likely to do and has already done with respect to Congress's power to regulate and federal agencies' power to use their statutory authorities to do things like address the pandemic through uh, vaccine regulation, that those changes and shifts in the court's doctrine will, will be identified as a moment in which people began to take seriously court reform. And I hope that the report that we produced, because it was focused on analyzing the arguments for and against reform and thinking through implementation questions will be an invaluable resource. So even though I think whatever happens with all of the court's cases in June uh, is likely to produce a lot of political debate, I don't see the needle on court reform itself moving given the way the, the power in Congress uh, breaks down at the moment. But I, but I do think it will contribute to a longer arc of Supreme Court reform debate. Uh, let me ask you, there were some proposals uh, toward the end of the report that seemed to have a lot of support, um, things such as uh, a specific and written code of ethics for Supreme Court justices, uh, the fact that, uh, or the proposal that justices should not individually own stocks, uh, that uh, the arguments should continue to be uh, streamed, things that sort of go to transparency uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, are those things Congress uh, could and should act on on its own, regardless of what the White House does on this report? Either one of you. I'll start and I'll say, I think here. that, <laughs> that uh, most of those reforms are ones that the court could itself adopt. Uh, the commission did not take a position on whether Congress should enact reforms, whether uh, with respect to judicial ethics or um, other transparency type reforms. There, there is some analysis in the report about Congress, in fact, having the authority to do so. But I think it's fair to say that it would be preferable for the court to, to act to bind itself, but to do so in a way that's clear to the public and that is actually consistently followed. And there, there was widespread agreement that something like a judicial code of ethics and limitations on stock ownership and the like are, are wise and prudent for the court and the public's perception of it and its uh, lack of bias in, in decision making. Uh, but for Congress to regulate the court in that fashion, even if it's within its power, is something uh, that uh, people would be cautious about. Uh, Judge, I, Griffin, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, as, go ahead. I'm sorry. As, you say, I agree. As a, as a former member of the federal judiciary, I'm a little bit anxious about uh, Congress overreaching, and I'm much in favor of the the, the court uh, uh, supervising itself in this regard. We have a chief justice who's keenly aware, keenly aware of the role of the court uh, in the public eye, and uh, I, I have confidence that they'll that they'll respond uh, uh, appropriately as, as, as necessary. Okay, uh, Professor Rodriguez, quickly, uh, Judge Griffith said that he changed his mind uh, after 
hearing some of the discussion at the commission. Is there anything that you changed your mind about, uh, something you thought going in uh, that changed uh, as a result of uh, the study and the work that you did? I think over time I became more sympathetic uh, to what we call in the report the disempowerment reforms, that uh, fundamentally the challenge is that the court has too much power uh, in the present moment. And I, I came to believe that more strongly than I did before, despite being a teacher and scholar of, of constitutional law for uh, almost two decades. I think that that reinforced my view that, that term limits are um, an important long-term solution to the problem that will help deconcentrate the power of particular individual justices. But I also think that uh, reforms that are addressed to uh, ensuring that the court is in fact deferential to political actors are ones well worth considering. Uh, the challenge, and this is articulated in the report, is that the types of reforms that would go the furthest in advancing that objective are the ones that are most likely to require a constitutional amendment. And those things that uh, this, the, that Congress can do on its own, such as stripping jurisdiction of the court to hear certain types of cases, are less effective because of their one-off nature. And, and so there is an implementation challenge associated with these sorts of reforms. I think the other thing that became clear to me about the debate over Supreme Court reform, and this relates to the debate over expansion, but also to disempowerment, is that the, the, the reform debate has a way of letting Congress off the hook, that a lot of what we're debating today through the lens of Supreme Court reform is actually a consequence of Congress not doing its job and that the institution that is most in need of invigoration in our system is in fact the Congress. Uh, of course, part of the reason that it is not as effective as it maybe once was in enacting legislation is the same polarization that's driving the debate over Supreme Court reform. So there's a, a deep problem in our political culture that makes it difficult for any of the institutions of government to function in a way that achieves consensus or respect across the ideological spectrum. And, and so uh, that is a, a much larger issue than the court reform debate. But thinking really long and hard about whether proposals for court reform would in fact address the problems that people often cite reform as necessary to address, uh, I think necessitates this bigger picture consideration of the limits of our system as a whole and the need for, for Congress to take greater responsibility for addressing the, the problems in economic and social life. Professor, I think you could get nine votes for that uh, at the Supreme Court. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank you both for uh, participating in this very interesting and timely conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.